Last class, uh, we talked about the interrogation and detention memo, I'm uh, sorry, the, <laughs> the torture memos as they're uh, called. So we talked about the Glenn case, that was the court martial case. Um, and I think we should ask ourselves whether we are um, condemned to repeat our own history in this, um, in this area. We seem to um, make the same mistakes repeatedly. We considered a couple of the specific techniques that OLC uh, evaluated in its uh, opinions. And I think at least some of us thought that some of the techniques on the table clearly were torture. Um, but I think a number of us also thought that a number of the techniques that were discussed were not torture, at least when used uh, alone. It gets more complicated when you start to see them used in combination, um, and also in the context, larger context in which they're being used, especially if you are held um, in uh, incommunicado detention. Then we thought a little bit about the subsequent developments, what happened after the John U. Bybee memos, and um, OLC withdrew those opinions, issued a subsequent opinion also interpreting the torture statute, but suggested it wouldn't have come out differently on the merits, even under the more modest interpretation of torture in the latter memo. Then the Hamdan case, the Supreme Court case, sweeps through and renders a fair amount of this moot because it concludes that common Article Three of the Geneva Conventions applies to um, all U.S. government officials and its conduct in this armed conflict with al-Qaeda. So this leads to that Bush executive order we talked about that interprets common Article Three quite narrowly, especially the provision on outrages on personal dignity. The idea there is to protect the CIA, maybe for activities it had engaged in in the past, and also to leave some room for somewhat controversial interrogation techniques, even moving forward. Then President Obama comes in, and he walks back that executive order and introduces his own that returns the US interpretation of common Article Three back to kind of the more conventional interpretation of that treaty provision. We also talked about the internal Department of Justice machinery that kicked in. There was uh, um, two reviews within the uh, Justice Department revu reviewing the U and Bybee analyses, um, and those came out different ways as to whether those attorneys should be sanctioned for their legal analysis. And of course, as we've talked about, Congress produces this gigantic report on rendition, detention, and interrogation many years later. That's the, the Senator Feinstein report. So I think the takeaway should be, um, what will we do if and when we confront similar security issues again? What is the, do, do we have a takeaway? Do we have the right takeaway from um, the ups and downs of what we talked about? Okay, um, current events, some excitement since we last met. Yeah, please, James. Um, depending on the to bolster its uh, special ops force, do we know how many? Um, I think it was, was it 50? I can't remember. So I think that was the number they'd already said. Yeah. I think they're, they're going to ramp up, and they haven't identified precisely by how much. So these are identified as special ops forces. But let's not kid ourselves. These are ground troops, right? Um, and the idea would be that they can conduct things like night raids, get better intelligence on the ground, and so on. 
Greg. The position of the Iraqi Prime Minister, though, then said yeah. that uh, we don't need foreign combat forces, yeah. to which John Kerry then responded, <laughs> Yes, you do. Them on this. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, think you don't. political theater probably wanted to look yeah. strong, but it certainly didn't look good. Right. I mean, in some ways, it makes you look weaker rather than coming out and saying, uh, you know, the U.S. asked us if they could come in and we affirmatively said yes, as in we have the authority to give them permission or withhold it. Uh, they sort of got the worst of both worlds there, right? Because they say, well, only on our watch, but you know what, the U.S. is going to go in anyway, right? Because it has this alternative self-defense theory, potentially, uh, even absent Iraqi consent. Brooklyn? Um, Turkey shot down the Yeah. Right. Do you know what the U.S. has said about it? Right, because people are saying, well, what is the intel? Were the was the Russian plane in Turkish airspace or not? Anyone see what the U.S. has said? So it actually confirmed, based on its intelligence, that the plane was in Turkish airspace, but it hasn't said anything about whether Turkey was correct as a matter of law or policy to shoot down the aircraft. I think trying to stay as neutral as possible. <laughs> in the wake of the shooting down the bomber, Russia has been installing missile defense systems at its, its bases in Syria. Oh, good. <laughs> I hadn't seen that. Um, I mean, I think this is, this is uh, some of the uh, military adventures we saw in this class were done, uh, so in Iraq, it was a coalition of the willing. Everybody was on board. There was a single commander. When NATO responds, there's a unified uh, you know, commander as well. It's unified operations. And here we have people, not a state, important big states, not uh, coordinating in the same coalition, even though they're not directly fighting each other. And I think these kinds of things um, sh show what some of the problems are with that. Yeah, Logan. Uh, in response to that, uh, Turkey, there's speculation that they might limit or shut down Russian access through the Bosporus Straits, which it, it's under a provision of international law that actually predates the UN. But what's weird about it is it is triggered by, I guess, wartime conditions which Turkey decides. So if huh. it escalates to a point, they could legally be allowed to do that. And so the idea would be basically that, that Russia and Turkey were at war? I hadn't seen that. That's interesting. Adriana? OK. Lauren? received the letter in 04 and challenged it. Um, and this was just the last piece the government that couldn't release what had been asked for. Um, yeah. So finally, um, actually the order, the opinion from the SDNY was in August, but there was a 90 day period the government didn't challenge it. So this was the last piece and kind of showing what the FBI would ask for with these letters. Um, I read a piece of the opinion and it was kind of, so much of this information is public already, the government can't really say that releasing the actual letter that this person received right. from a request would pose any kind of danger. Yeah, did, were you guys, I don't know if anyone else saw this news item, but were you surprised at what the revelation was? What the FBI had asked for? I, I thought it was sort of a no-duh, right? It was a single client, um, and it was his email uh, all of his email addresses, uh, phone contacts, but it was not the substance of his emails to other people, right? Specifically, said we're not asking exactly. to provide any content. 
exactly. So I feel like the government shouldn't have fought that release for so long because it's not a bad news story for the government. I think it actually shows a fair amount of restraint in what they were asking for. Anyone else? Let's see. Um, da, da, da. So I had two other things. The USA Freedom Act has finally kicked in, and Section 215 of the Patriot Act is no more. Um, but there are still questions about kind of the, what do you do with the residual information that you had collected under 215. I think there will be some um, sort of continued litigation. And the government is in a litigation posture where it has to retain a whole lot of this information because it's in litigation with people who are alleging they've been spied on. So ironically, the civil rights, uh, sorry, sort of civil liberties groups that have brought this litigation are the cause of the US government retaining lots and lots of this information. Um, and irony, I'm sure that is not lost on the US government. Um, and finally, there was a report that Chinese espionage, the commercial espionage that we've talked about before, has actually fallen off in the wake of the commitment by President Xi to, to knock it off. Um, and there was some report that um, in the meeting that the Chinese at a senior level have had with the US over the past week, um, the Chinese are now asserting that the theft of the OPM data was actually a criminal act and not committed by state actors. So I don't know quite what to do with that, but that's, the, that's where we are. Okay. So I want to turn to um, today's topic. So we've studied detention for a number of classes. Um, those raise use and bellow questions. We also talked about what it means to take direct part in hostilities. That's also a use and bellow question. And so what I want to think about a little bit more today is a couple of other use and bellow principles that regulate targeting. Um, I think it's helpful to understand these rules when we turn to thinking about drones, because they implicate these questions. So what I want to do first is talk about three substantive use and bellow rules that relate to targeting. So distinction, proportionality, and precautions. And then I want to talk about the use of drones, including by the CIA. And I want to think of, I want to break down and think about some of the underlying debates that have made the use of drones so controversial. And then, uh, if we have time, I want to talk more specifically about targeted killings, right, which you can conduct not using drones. You can use drones, but you can also use them through other means. And how that relates to this question of what the geographic scope of the conflict with al-Qaeda is. How it's not just limited to Afghanistan, but um, the US thinks it extends more broadly to other areas. And then finally, if we really have time, and I don't think we will, I want to talk about the interaction between two bodies of international law, the laws of war, the laws of armed conflict on the one hand, and international human rights law on the other. It'll come up a little bit, I think, towards the end of class. OK, so I want to start with substantive targeting rules, the three that are relevant, most relevant to us. And the first one is distinction. So this is a principle that's thought to be customary international law. Uh, it's specifically spelled out in the additional Protocol 1 of 1977, to which the US isn't a party. But the US accepts this as a matter of customary law. So the idea is that if you're fighting an armed conflict, 
You have to distinguish between the civilians, meaning both civilian people and civilian objects, things like schools and churches, on the one hand, and military objectives, which include both the armed forces and things like tanks and aircraft, military aircraft and so on, on the other. You need to only target the latter. So the, the principle of distinction is spelled out refers to military objectives. So we might ask, well, what specifically is a military objective? How do we think about um, things not that are not just squarely tanks, but other things used by the military? And this is the definition that Additional Protocol 1 tees up. So it's objects that by their nature, location, purpose or use make an effective contribution to military action by your enemy. Okay, this is also, um, these are provisions in your book as well. Okay, so we'll come back to this question, but I want to back up first briefly and ask, why shouldn't one state that's fighting another state in an all-out war be able to target the entire population of its enemy, civilian or military, right? This is a, um, a war in which our goal is to win. We want to bring the enemy to its knees. Why isn't that where we end up in the laws of war? Um, James, Paulus, why not just go after everybody? Say we're in a armed conflict with Russia. Yeah, we want to take out the Russian military, but hey, why stop there? I guess it just goes back to also, you know, you wouldn't, I think you know, neither state would want that in like, retaliation through your own population as well. Okay, so there's clearly a proportionality issue here. Remember, we're, we're in an interstate armed conflict. This is not the U.S. fighting Al-Qaeda. This is U.S. fighting Russia. So there's a reciprocity concern. Why else? James, any other thoughts? I guess also the, pra like, the practical effect, um, you know, taking out the civilian population, would that actually be able to help the military objectives or not? And if anything, might like, really redouble the, yeah, the, other, the other countries' efforts. Right. Right. So both things, right? You might really then bolster the Russian civilians' commitment to, to wipe you off the map. And also, as, as robust as the military is, it has limited capacities, limited weaponry. Why waste your, your missiles and your flight runs and all that taking out people who aren't fighting you, right? You really want to go after the Russian jets and the Russian tanks. It is just simply, uh, I think maybe the first thing you said is perhaps the most important reason. It's, there's a humanitarian goal undergirding all of this, that states have just decided that it is inhumane to target people who aren't directly involved in the fighting. Okay, so James, what if you conduct wide-scale bombardment of military targets in Russia around the country, and that bombardment campaign terrifies all of the civilians? Is that a violation of the laws of war? I mean, so it's, uh, is this targeted on the military targets there? Right. It's, it's a byproduct of being engaged in an armed conflict, but that wouldn't pose a specific violation under the laws of war. You're not allowed to terrorize the civilian population as such, 
but using military strikes on military objectives might strike fear in their hearts, but it is not uh, a violation. Okay, so we have to distinguish between military objectives and civilian objects. And in some cases, that will be easy. But I want to work through a couple of hypotheticals that show that it can be a little more complicated than all of that. So let's assume that China invades the east coast of the United States, lands near Norfolk. Um, and the People's Liberation Army has to determine what it can target in and around the Charlottesville area. Um, let's see, Alvin, can it target a military base? Yes. Can it target the rotunda? No. Civilian object, right? Can it target a landmine sniffing dog that the U.S. Army has? Yes. Right. As cold-hearted as that sounds, <laughs> you can target the landmine sniffing dog. How about a railroad bridge over which both civilian passenger trains and military trains travel? I would say probably yes. Um, it, it goes towards the logistical capacity of uh, the enemy you're fighting. So. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think we would say the destruction of that railroad bridge would offer a definite military advantage if the um, all of a sudden the U.S. can't get its um, its equipment to where it was trying to take it on the train. <coughs> Alvin, how about a church that is used impermissibly by U.S. Army snipers? Yes. Okay. Yep. Military objective. How about the CIA headquarters in Langley? Yes. Yes. Assuming that intelligence that the CIA is gathering is, is making a contribution to U.S. Um, war efforts, and it seems likely that it would. <clears throat> okay, so... During the U.S. Civil War, the North believed that the sale of cotton was providing funds for almost all of the Confederate arms and ammunition. Alvin, could the North, as a result, destroy the raw cotton? That's a little bit harder. Uh, That's why I'm asking you. <laughs> I, mean, I can see them certainly doing an embargo. Mm -hmm. Setting up a blockade. Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of destroying the raw cotton, mm -hmm. that might be targeting the civilian population a little bit too much. Might be a little bit on the other side of the line. Does everyone agree with that? Anyone think it's targetable? And did you have your hand up? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it is because that's how the financing the military campaign going. Mm -hmm. That would be a military objective. So Okay, so Ant, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, I think yeah. you can distinguish that if it were like wheat or some sort of food crop that the population depended on mm -hmm. for literal survival. I think that is more unacceptable than just a cash crop type situation. Okay, I agree. That's a useful distinction. James? But can you stretch too much the argument then that anything that's tax, that it's tax paying, really mm -hmm. financing war, and you create an argument for destroying everything? Mm -hmm. Right. Even a, even a personal property because it pays personal property taxes, finances work. Right. So, yeah, Alvin. I was also going to say, even if even if maybe you could, you might not want to for the same reasons that we distinguish anyways. Because, like, say, Afghanistan, if you go and wipe out all the, the poppy and the heroin uh, mm -hmm. plants in the south, right. that's just really going to upset the population right. and support out there. That was James's point on the 
on the um, not if you agitate the, your your enemy too much, the civilian populace might rally behind the government. Yeah, so Greg. that's a good policy reason. But as far as like from a legal perspective, mm-hmm. I feel like it only almost turns on like approximate cause mm-hmm. kind of rule. Like how mm-hmm. close how close is it? Like are the funds going directly mm-hmm. to the military? Or is it kind of being funneled through taxes? You know, that doesn't necessarily give you a, a firm line, but I think it's a, a good way to think about it. Yeah, so frankly, Anne's position is basically where the U.S. government is, and Alvin is where the, most of the rest of the world is. So um, the, the U.S. government takes the view that in some circumstances, it is okay to target war-sustaining activities. And in this case, in the Civil War, if you took away the cotton, the Confederacy arguably wouldn't have had any ability to buy arms and ammunition. But others think that that creates a real slippery slope problem along the line James identified, which is, okay, well, if it's anything that's providing funds from the citizenry to the military, then why not uh, civilian bank accounts and so on? It really takes you down a slope. So the, the, the usually accepted rule is that you need a proximate nexus to the, uh, to the war fighting, that just war sustaining is probably not sufficient. Okay, Alvin, I've got a few more for you. Um, A privately owned factory that's manufacturing bullets for use by the U.S. military? Can the Chinese target that? Yes, I think they could. I mean, that would go towards the military capacity in the U.S. Right. Even if there's civilians in it who are sitting there making the bullets? Yes. Yes, although it raises a question about proportionality, which is something we'll talk about in just a sec. How about a military hospital? It would depend. So if it's just if it's just got the Red Cross on it and it's not being used as a war fighting function, then no, I don't think it could, it could be targeted. But if that same hospital was a command center, then yes, it could be. Right. So if you're using it like you were using the, the U.S. Army snipers were using the church, then the answer is yes, that you may still have proportionality problems. But if it's just a military hospital doing its business uh, and treating prisoners, then the answer is no. So it is a military facility, but there are specific other rules that make it a protected uh, building. All right, last one, Alvin. Retreating U.S. troops. The U.S. starts to panic, and they all turn around and start to flee uh, this, air, this region. The Chinese are just making good headway. Yes. Can the Chinese target them? Still yes, that's correct. Well done. Um, the only way to Im- <laughs> I know he, he has a military background, in case you were wondering. Um, the only way to immunize yourselves from attack as a combatant is to surrender, or if you're wounded. But in my scenario, it would be to surrender. So some cases of distinction are easier than others. And the trick is to look at how clearly something is being or will be used for military operations. Okay, so the bullet factory raised this question about proportionality. What is that? So I've put the basic rule up on the, on the board. You are not allowed to conduct an attack against a military objective if, you're, if the expectation of the incidental loss of life to civilians or damage to civilian property would be excessive in relation to the military advantage you expect to gain. 
So even where you pass the distinction test, and you have to pass the distinction test, you still have to deal with proportionality problems. As with our ammunition factory workers in that hypothetical. So there are two things I want to be clear about here. The first is that this, this proposition is only relevant when you are thinking about targeting a military objective that has civilians in or around it. Right? If you're trying to strike a stream of Russian tanks who are headed into Siberia and you don't think there are any civilians around, proportionality is not a question. And the second thing I want to be clear about is this is different from use ad bellum proportionality. Right? They both use the same word, but they mean different things. Right? This is asking about uh, whether you can, uh, what level of, of collateral damage, it's basically the, the euphemistic term used here, what level of collateral damage is acceptable in targeting a particular object. Use ad bellum proportionality relates to the overall, your, your general size of response to an incoming armed attack. You guys see the difference? Okay. Okay, Adriana, I have a question for you about use in bellow proportionality. Why might this be a difficult rule to apply if you're a military officer? Right, so that's an important reason why this is a hard <clears throat> rule to apply. We have what's called the fog of war. Um, especially if you are targeting something, there are pre-planned targets, and then there are targets of opportunity. In a pre-planned target, you scope it out in advance, you have a good sense, not a perfect sense, but maybe a good sense of where civilians are and are not. Especially when you're talking about targeting on the fly, all of a sudden someone you've been following runs into a building, you don't know how many civilians are in there, it gets more complicated. The test there, how to deal with that, um, is you apply a standard of what a reasonable commander knew or should have known. And if you get it wrong, for reasonable reasons, and lots of civilians die, it's not a war crime. You have not violated the principle of proportionality. Can anyone else see other aspects of why this is hard to apply? Alvin? Well, if you've got like the head, you have Osama bin Laden and he's got 300 civilians around him. Mm -hmm. You know, taking him out might, proportionally might be, you might be saving a lot of loss of life in the end. So. Mm -hmm might be worth it, even with a significant civilian population. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, this test has you think about both things when you're, when you're running it through the system, right? Because <clears throat> in your hypothetical, the concrete and direct military advantage gained by killing Osama bin Laden is very high, at least in the U.S. view, right? So that would, that would allow you 
to incidentally harm a greater number of civilians than if you're talking about a ground soldier, right? I think the way it works within the US chain of command is that the more significant the target and the, where you have a, a significant target and a likelihood that a lot of civilians will be killed, and by a lot, I think I mean more than five or 10, I think the decision goes all the way up the chain, potentially to the Secretary of Defense. Um, do we want to impose this harm given the value of the military target? But it raises a question about what's excessive, right? There's no definition of excessive in the treaty. And it is largely self-judging, right? The, the military that's undertaking the strike judges what's excessive. Anything else hard about this definition? Yeah, Mark? Uh, I think in some ways you're kind of comparing apples and oranges. Excellent, right, yes. You know, like civilian innocent lives have nothing to do with the war versus a military objective, and how do you weigh the value of that life versus the, they're just so different? Exactly, right? There's an incommensurability here, and there's no guidance really as to reconcile it. So it feels a little bit like a smell test. Okay, any questions about proportionality, use and bellow proportionality? Okay, the third principle I want to mention is, oh yeah, please, Austin. Um, so in situations where there's no effort made by the state to differentiate who's a civilian and who's not in mm -hmm. terms of fighting in the war effort, mm -hmm. how does the proportionality standard change? Well, the, f the hypothetical tees up a war crime. Right, so your hypothetical um, has a state that is not even heeding the principle of distinction, right? Well, I mean, like in, in terms of the state that's being targeted, if they don't make an effort to distinguish among civilians and people who are. Wait, the state that's that's being targeted, or the state that's doing the targeting? Being targeted, like how would that affect the the state that's doing the targeting? How would that affect? Oh, so, so if, for example, you have uh, Russia fighting from within Moscow and right. they, they establish a bunch of military bases right in the thick of their civilian population, how does that affect how we target? <clears throat> so it's a good question. Um, Russia, in that context, is potentially violating, not potentially, is violating the laws of war to not try to d separate out its military operations from its civilian population. <clears throat> but at the same time, it doesn't relieve our obligation to comply with the best we can, <clears throat> the pr proportionality rules. It makes our job harder, um, but we don't want to fall into the trap of blowing through the laws of war just because Russia blew through the laws of war. <clears throat> okay, so precautions in attack. So precautions end up being pretty important these days um, where so much fighting takes place within urban areas, so in the kind of um, situation that Austin just described. So for example, in the Israel-Hamas conflict, where Israel has to do a lot of targeting in Gaza, um, it actually came up more recently in the Kunduz medicine, uh, Doctors Without uh, Borders hospital that got targeted. This too is thought to be a customary, inter uh, customary international law rule but it, it, like the other rules we've talked about, it's contained in additional protocol one as well. 
the idea is that those actors who are planning the attack, so in Austin's hypothetical, the US trying to strike in the heart of Moscow, has to, they have to take certain precautions. So the first thing is they have to do everything feasible to verify that the objectives they're attacking are in fact military objectives. They're expected to choose the methods and means of attack to either avoid or minimize incidental injury to civilians and civilian objects. So that might, for example, affect the kind of weapon you choose to use against a particular target. Some have wider blast radiuses than others. <clears throat> and you're also supposed to give effective advance warning of attacks that may affect the civilian population unless circumstances don't permit. So there's an out, but the idea is to minimize the possibility of collateral damage before you conduct the strike, not after. You can't minimize after the strike is done. This is to try to get civilians out of the way beforehand. <clears throat> Does anyone know what roof knocking is? Brooklyn. Um, it's the Israeli method of warning civilians about a strike, so they'll either send a defunct like missile into a building or some sort of um, something into a building to let people know that the next one coming is not. Is not a dud? Yeah, it's not a dud. It's going to be more powerful to let people, give people a chance to get out. Right. So my understanding is they try to use smaller explosives that have, they, they do explode on the roof, but they don't do significant damage to the building. And it's, an, it's, a, it's a signal to people who live in that building to get out of the building because it will be the subject of a, of a military strike. <clears throat> Israel also calls Gaza residents, I guess it has them all on speed dial, <laughs> and leaves voicemail messages on their, on their cell phones saying that they're going to bomb houses where weapons are found. So if you happen to live in a building that you know, you're, maybe you're not Hamas, but you know that Hamas is storing some stuff in the basement, it puts you on notice uh, that you better get out of there. There's also a form of precautions that's called leafleting. So you drop leaflets over the area that you are uh, potentially going to target or you're trying to communicate to the enemy population a certain thing. So. <clears throat> this is uh, a leaflet that Israel dropped um, in Gaza that urges civilians to avoid being present in the vicinity of Hamas operatives. Maybe relevant to us, um, the U.S. is reportedly leafleting oil tank drivers in Syria. So ISIS is making a lot of money off oil, and the U.S. has decided to target that oil, presumably as a military objective, um, and it it may be doing the, it may be leafleting the drivers as a matter of policy, um, or maybe as a matter of law, right? So if the driver is a member of ISIS that's transporting the oil to his headquarters, he's potentially targetable. But there may be uncertainty about who the people are who are driving the trucks. Maybe ISIS has um, forced civilians to drive it for them and so on. So I think the, the leaflet says, uh, we're going to target oil trucks. You should get out and flee. Um, and I think they've seen some people actually leave their trucks. Lauren? I have a related question. It gets a little messy because it's ISIS, but I think 
there's a, there are reports that they're forcing people to stay in Ramadi because there's indication that there's going to be an offensive in there. Oh. ISIS is allegedly blocking people from leaving. They want civilians to be there. So where does that put us or the Iraqi forces? Right. Anyone know what that's called when you do that? Mark? Yeah. Right, so that would be using civilians as human shields, which is a war crime. Um, and this goes back to Austin's question. Does it mean that we can just blow through it and take everybody out? No, and in fact, both as a matter of law and policy, that would not be uh, in the US best interest to do it. But it surely makes it more complicated. This is what has agitated the Israelis for years, because they say this is exactly what Hamas deliberately does. Um, that it operates from within civilian areas, um, making it very hard for us to, to target them, even though they would be lawful military targets. Okay, so the, um, the precautions rule, which is, uh, I think it's in your casebook at 246. So if you look at 57.2, a two, small two, this is where you take all feasible precautions in the choice of means and methods of attack with a view to avoiding or minimizing damage. So um, Adriana, if a state has high-tech precision weapons, like the U.S. does, should it be, is it required to use them as a matter of law pursuant to the pre precautions rule? Right, so I agree with that. I especially agree with the policy argument. Does anyone want to argue that the U.S. shouldn't, as a matter of law, have to use its highest tech precision weapons every time it acts? Yeah, please. Um, it says to take all feasible precautions, mm -hmm. and perhaps because of the expense or availability of these kind of weapons, uh, maybe using them in every situation isn't. Yeah. Yeah, I think that would be one of the counter arguments to that. Mark? Well, and kind of going on the same lines, it also creates a disincentive to creating mm -hmm. more advanced weapons. <laughs> right. Then you're tying yourself, you're tying your hands and saying, now I have to spend more money every time, so maybe I shouldn't make these better weapons, so I have right. more options. Right. So we know you know how to do this because we've seen you use these precision weapons. Maybe you've run out of them, as David suggests could happen and surely does happen, then you've got to make more. That's the kind of weapon you know you've raised the bar for yourself and that's what you have to do because it's feasible for you to take those precautions. <clears throat> it does impose a bias against more technologically sophisticated countries, making it either harder or more costly for them to fight these conflicts. And states like the U.S., I think, try to emphasize that that's not the only kind of precaution that Article 57 is talking about, right? There are other precautions that we just talked about, like leafleting. But Adriana makes the good point that public perception is really important here. 
and that if it's perceived that we are using less precise weapons when we have more precise weapons, that doesn't win hearts and minds. Right? Okay, any questions about these law of war principles before we move on to drones? Okay. So I had you read Harold Coe's speech from 2010. This is on the casebook at 397. And this was the, um, the speech is notable because it's the first time that the government really got out and started talking about um, its use of unmanned aerial vehicles, which is the term that it prefers. And it was prompted by this increase in stories about the US using drones to target individuals in Somalia and Yemen um, and Pakistan. So we're going to focus on, on the use of drones to engage in lethal strikes. But keep in mind that drones are used for a whole lot of things, many of which are not that. Right, so they can help forces that are in the field see over the next hill. They have handheld drones. You can basically launch by throwing them. They sail over. They let you see who's on the other side um, of a hill or mountain. They do a lot of hovering to gather intelligence um, and apprise fighters of what's going on on the battlefield, troop movements, people planting IEDs. They were used at a hostage standoff. Um, in an oil refinery in Algeria a couple of years ago. And they are also easily targetable by other states' armed forces. They are slow moving, and they fly reasonably low. Some of them do. So the context in which they've generally been used are when you're fighting non-state actors that don't have the same um, ground-to-air capacity, or air, you're not in an air-to-air -air type scenario. They fly about 80 miles an hour. The Predator flies about 80 miles an hour. And of course, domestically, they're going to start to be used for a whole lot of things, including potentially by Amazon to deliver your Amazon Prime orders. <laughs> but that is a domestic question that we are not going to take on here. <laughs> um, before we, th we sort of roll up our sleeves on drones, I, it's useful to remember that the history of warfare and weapons is this idea of increasing the standoff distance from your enemy. So war starts with hand-to-hand -hand combat. Then somebody figures out, well, maybe I can throw a rocket, Lewis, and keep him away from me so he doesn't get to um, you know, strangle me with uh, his hands. Then you start seeing people on horseback. Then you start seeing people throwing spears. Then you have a crossbow further away and potentially more accurate, right? And then guns also allow you to stand back more and are quite lethal. And then as you fast forward into the 20, 20th and 21st century, you th see things like Tomahawk missiles fired from ships in, say, the Gulf, uh, traveling thousands of miles, and high-altitude bombing, right? The goal is to hit your enemy with greater accuracy while keeping yourself safe from him. him. So I want to ask, how are drones similar to or different from those tactics and weapons that we've just seen the historical um, path of? Is a drone just the latest on, a, on that continuum? Or is there something different about drones? Anyone think that drones are somehow unique? Alvin? 
Yeah, well, there's no, there's no person there. Yeah. So the standoff distance is on the other side of the world. Mm -hmm. and that's, that's a significant difference. As compared with even like with high altitude bombers, like you've got an Air Force, you can go mm -hmm. after those and, and exact some sort of, uh, you know, I want to say revenge, but you can at least thwart some, some missions like that with drones. Mm -hmm. You can't stop them. Right. Because as long as they keep being built and flying over right. your territory, what are you going to do? Well, how about warships that are floating uh, a thousand miles away that can launch? The Russians just showed that video of 26 strikes off um, their giant ship uh, into Syria. Is that different? That's, it's, I still think of it as a little different because the missile itself is just it's the projectile. Yeah. Whereas the drone is the actual thing firing the mm -hmm. missile, and that doesn't have the person in it. Mm -hmm. That the, the person's in Nevada, mm -hmm. and there's no way to get at that person. You can get at the ship, and mm -hmm. you can't get at the ship because of mm -hmm. you know, capacity. I guess you have luck, but the missile itself is not firing itself. It gets mm -hmm. fired by a person from the ship. Mm -hmm. And so that makes a that makes a cognitive difference to you. Yeah, I think so. Because at least again, a lot of countries can at least get at the uh -huh. ship or attempt uh -huh. to. Even ISIS can put someone on a boat and try to go after the ship right. if they have that, right. you know, they're in the, the region. Right. Well, if you're Russia, though, you could get at the guy in, in Nellis Air Force Base in Las Vegas, yeah. right? Yeah. So depending on the capacity of your enemy, it may or may not make a difference. And did you have your hand up? Oh, no, but I heard okay. something. Okay. Yeah, Ryan. But I mean, also, doesn't the drone itself, you know, you may drop a missile or whatever, but can't you attack the drone if you can find it, I guess, if you have mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, I, I don't know for sure. I don't have classified information on this, but um, the U.S. has a bunch of bases in, or has a big base in Djibouti, and it conducts strikes in Somalia. So presumably it's not flying the drone from Nellis. might be operating the drone from Nellis or from Djibouti, but it's uh, in theater, I think, right? It's, you know, drones have limited um, distance capacities as well. Air balloons, we use flights. Mm -hmm. I think, in that respect, I think drones are quite in line mm -hmm. with historical and critical warfare. Right. Air balloons are not quite as stealthy as drones, <laughs> right? <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, so, well, so Alvin raised something that I think is intuitive to some people, which is that the operators are often much farther away from the theater than warships, and they go home at night to their families. Right, there's something sort of strange about fighting a conflict during the day and going home to watch TV with your kids at night. So the, the drone pilots themselves, who may, let's assume they're sitting in Nellis Air Force Base, are unlikely to feel physical danger. You might feel a little bit more physical danger on a ship that's launching a Tomahawk missile. It feels more like you're in combat. And yet, drone pilots at Nellis have PTSD at reasonably high levels. So they, in some ways, don't feel as though they are removed from the battlefield. What's Harold Coe's argument about why drones promote the law of war principles that we just talked about? Kyle? 
What does he say about drones and proportionality and distinction? He seems to, well, first he talks about how the rules of law don't turn on the weapon system used, mm -hmm. and so he tries to emphasize the procedure that goes into using the drones. Mm -hmm. So the great amount of planning to ensure compliance with the distinction and proportionality, and so the fact that you're, you may be carrying these missions out with drones doesn't change the fact that there's still a lot of work going in behind the scenes to ensure that you're still distinguishing between civilians and military objectives. Right. Does he say that there's anything sort of advantageous about drones in this context? Why might drones help you comply with distinction and proportionality? Anyone? Lewis? Because it, it combines the ability to uh, do your reconnaissance and your uh, targeting at the same time. Yeah. To loiter and get a pattern of life for hours on end and say how many civilians are in there. Um, and they would, they would, you know, they'd call back as a line operation Troy where they talk about, they would call back and check mm -hmm. the pattern of life of these compounds for hours on end before mm -hmm. they're shot. Mm -hmm. And so like Carol was talking about, it helps you with your distinction, uh, making sure you've got a lawful issue. Right. So it helps you ensure that you know what the target is, and it helps you ensure what you know about civilians in the, in the area you're trying to target. This is especially where the target is pre-planned, right? But it can reduce the number of civilian casualties. Plus, you can, you can linger afterwards to see what happens in the aftermath. Lauren? So at the same point, yeah. I was thinking of um, like when we sent cruise missiles in 98 um, after the MC attacks, yeah. the Al-Qaeda attacks. I mean, it takes hours to launch those, and even the travel time could be, say, mm -hmm. half hours. So it's actually going to change yep. a lot between when you fire it, you can't unfire it. Right. Um, Changes. Right. Within a half an hour, you can have a busload of school kids pull up next to the building you're about to target. Whereas with the drone, launch the missile to target, it's a much shorter period of time. I mean, I think it's like a second. Um, if you you can see, actually, you can see a video that Israel posted online on YouTube of targeting a, a, a Hamas member in a vehicle. Um, and you can see how fast it, it occurs. We should talk about whether that's a good thing or a bad thing to be posting that online, but um, anyway, so drones allow you to see who comes to the building afterwards, what, um, who, how many bodies get taken out. You, it helps you increase your, your post-event intelligence. It's also possible, and Co doesn't really talk about this, but we might wonder whether um, you have a certain, uh, that the individuals who are piloting the drones are less affected by the heat of battle than you would be if you're flying over in an F-16. I don't know that, but um, there's a tension, right? On the one hand, the U.S. has been very cautious to, to not say, well, it's like a Game Boy mentality. They don't want a perception that the people flying the drones are treating it like a video game. And the fact that they get PTSD, I think, is a is a um, evidence to the contrary. But there may be a sort of ability to keep more calm and have um, sort of maximum intelligence when you're not directly there. Okay, so I want to. 
to parse out some of the debates that surround the use of drones and see if we can break it down into different issues. <clears throat> the first issue was one of collateral damage and debates about how many civilians have been killed in these kinds of drone strikes. So at one point, John Brennan said, um, the US has killed 600 militants since 2010. He said this a while ago, so this is not a recent figure, but they've killed 600 militants since 2010 and not a single civilian. And that made the, the headlines, US claims hasn't killed single civilian, because it seemed in significant tension with some of the other reports that NGOs and, um, and others following this issue had come out with. So it seems like that can't be right. And he later uh, walked that back a little bit. In part, when the US says no civilians killed, it made people wonder how the US was defining militant or enemy combatant, right? And that raised other questions. Was it defining it so broadly that it was encompassing all military-aged males, for example? But there have been a number of, of actors who have tried to pull together reports on civilian deaths. There's something called the Small Wars Journal, which did a study on this. The Center for New American Security did some. Um, the average percentage that they can estimate um, if you take those reports together, is that 5 to 20% of the people killed in these strikes are civilians. That seems like it's not a very precise number. Um, but it's certainly not 90% and it's not zero. And note also that there are incentives from some actors on the ground, including the Taliban, to overstate the number of civilian deaths. Right? It is to their advantage to claim that these US strikes in the sky are killing many, many civilians. So I think the way the US probably tries to get uh, accurate numbers is, again, it watches the aftermath of strikes. It watches the funerals that happen <coughs> after these events. And it intercepts cell calls of people discussing who was killed in the strikes. So that's one big debate is how many civilians are being killed, how difficult it, how difficult it is to figure out accurate numbers, especially when you're talking about, you know, sort of remote west of Pakistan where you just don't have uh, intelligence people on the ground to, to make accurate uh, assessments. A second reason that drones can be controversial is what I'd call the CIA angle. So the CIA is reportedly in charge of some percentage of drone strikes, and DOD's in charge of the other percentage. Well, why, why is that? Why not just have the military do it? So it's not entirely clear. But it might be because it's sometimes the CIA that has the best relationship with the host states in which the targeting is taking place. Or the host state trusts the CIA to make fewer mistakes. So this might have happened in Yemen. There was a strike that targeted a wedding party. It was thought that DOD had been involved in that. So maybe Yemen says, look, you can continue to conduct drone strikes, but only if the CIA does it. There's also some notion that the CIA strikes are more deniable. right? They're presumably done as covert actions. Um, 
but it's not entirely clear that's true. The U.S. military is not running forward to claim responsibility for its strikes. Kyle, would the CIA have to comply with the laws of war when it's conducting its drone strikes? Or is it exempt from the laws of war? I, I wouldn't say that it's exempt from the laws of war. It seems that I think there's some suggestion in the supplement that there, um, even the intelligence community can be prosecuted for laws of war mm-hmm. or violations of the laws of war. That's right. So the laws of war make no distinction about which state actor has to comply with them. States that are parties to the, the law of war conventions and uh, all states are bound by customary international law, uh, whether it's Intel, whether it's DOD, whether it's the State Department, all of a sudden engaging in armed conflict, everybody would have to comply with the laws of war. No carve-outs for Intel. How is the CIA different from the military, though, Kyle? Is there, should their involvement with drones affect how we think about the U.S. use of drones? Are, they, are there reasons to be more worried about the CIA doing it than the military? I think to some extent, um, given the covert na- nature of a lot of the CIA, CIA activities, it may seem like um, there's a greater risk that there's less transparency, mm-hmm. and that's always a concern when mm-hmm. there's such a high risk of civilian loss in these activities. But I think to a certain degree, um, given their experience with surveillance, I think that it should be expected that the CIA is going to continue to utilize these drone Mm -hmm. strikes and may be more effective in some of their surveillance techniques so that, as Ko was saying, that might actually help with the distinction of proportionality Mm -hmm. concerns. Mm -hmm. Ryan? It might also be problematic because it blurs the line on our side between civilian and uh, you know military actors. Because you know we can criticize the other side for oh we don't know who civilians in there are. But if you're like saying before like you know we start saying CIA is military actors and taking part in armed activities, then what about the State Department? What about these other things? And are other people going to attack us because they don't know who's really you know taking part? Right. Well, so let's assume the CIA is still considered to be a civilian. Uh, agency, if you were a CIA official engaged in actually, you know, firing missiles from drones in targeted killing, and you happen to find yourself in Yemen, and Yemen happens to decide that it wanted to prosecute you for murder, right? This is a far-fetched hypothetical for lots and lots of reasons, but you would not be entitled to prisoner of war status or combatant immunity in a way that the military might because you're not you're a civilian official so it wouldn't be a war crime for you to uh, strike a military objective just as it wouldn't be one for DOD to strike a military objective but you would not be entitled to to prisoner of war protections on the tail end there's another question about whether the CIA knew or knows the laws of war as well as the military. That was at least a question when this first started happening. So say 2002, uh, there was a drone strike on an individual in Yemen. I don't know whether it was CIA or military. But one of the early questions was, well, look, the military is deeply trained in the laws of war, and the CIA is a newcomer to this game. So maybe they don't really understand the how you go about assessing uh, distinction and proportionality questions. My prediction would be that by now, 
that hurdle is is overcome because the CIA is reportedly has been in this business for um, many years at this point. A second concern, and this is a little, Kyle touched on this a little bit, is that the CIA is generally not subject to the Uniform Code of Military Justice where the military is. So it might be harder to um, punish wrongdoing than it would be in the military context where there's a regular process <coughs> for it. Okay, so that's the second uh, cluster of concerns about drone use, is CIA involvement. A third cluster is what I'd call transparency questions. Because the US government has not been highly transparent about who's using what drones where. Right? There's little understanding of what the US government's rules of engagement are. Um, there is no claim system that um, has been established, unlike, for example, in Iraq where if you were a civilian injured by um, multinational force operations in Iraq, there was a way for you to claim damage to your property or harm to, to your person, and the military could pay out. There's no equivalent for drone operations. And there's also, therefore, not a huge amount of public and media oversight of the programs. There's another criticism that has come up as well, is, and that's that the US has leaked strategically about certain aspects of the drone program and remained very tight-lipped on other parts. Um, so for example, it, um, it leaked that there was an OLC opinion related to targeting Alakwi. It told Charlie Savage of the New York Times that. But then in litigation, it, it stoutly resists revealing things about, um, about the program. So I think in an effort to address these kind of transparency concerns, since 2010, you have seen executive officials and often senior lawyers in the executive branch give speeches about drone use. So Harold Coase is the first in a series. Jay Johnson, who was the DOD general counsel, gave a speech. Steve Preston, who was the CIA general counsel, gave a speech. And John Brennan, who was at the White House at the time, gave it several speeches related to drone use. Brennan, for example, acknowledged that the U.S. uses drones to strike al-Qaeda, including outside the active battlefields of, Af of Afghanistan and Iraq. And that was seen as um, a revelation, even though many, many people knew or thought they knew that was happening well before then. And Brennan says things like, well, binding the U.S. government to international law and the laws of war is a strategic advantage, not a hindrance. We want to come out and own the fact that we are bound by or are treating these rules as, um, as binding us because we're worried about what happens when other states that are less responsible start using these things too. So I'd say that's the third cluster of issues. The fourth cluster is this question of having skin in the game. And that came up a little bit when we were talking about whether drones are somehow different. The law of war does not usually require you to take additional risks to your own troops to achieve a, a specific goal. It doesn't require you to be present on the battlefield. There's no rule that says you have to be there. 
though it does require things like ensuring that your weapons are not indiscriminate and of course complying with the kinds of laws of war we've just talked about. But apart from the legal requirement, one question comes up more as a sort of policy or moral matter, which is, is there such a thing as honorable combat and is the use of drones outside of that? Is it somehow um, dishonorable to have a machine basically doing the job for you? To be clear, you, you know, there is an individual saying, shoot that missile. These are not um, robots doing it, but is there something that sort of tastes bad about this? What do you guys think on that? Is this just, hey, we're technologically ahead of the game, this is just another step of uh, adding in standoff distances and increasing accuracy and tough noogies? Brooklyn? I think the conversation may get a little different when other actors have the ability to use drones at the rate that we do it. I think for now, it's a little bit harder to make those arguments, at least for myself, because I kind of feel like I'm arguing into a void. Mm -hmm. um, but I think when we start seeing drones, there's more widespread and autonomous weapons and vehicles more yeah. widespread. This conversation may open up and people on one side of it may start to think about the other side and they find themselves potentially targetable. Yeah, or it might just be seen as sort of the ordinary course of business rather than one side having such a significant advantage over the other side. Greg and then Lauren? I think there's a sense in which the as the standoff distance gets wider, it becomes then easier to actually strike and it makes war easier in a sense. I mean, I guess in any way, in some way, all laws of war are like that, but there's a sense in which it becomes, you know, not quite the Game Boy mentality, but just lowers the cost so much that it becomes easy to resort to violence Whereas like when we step back on the international law regime is that this is all supposed to be kind of a, a last resort in mm -hmm. general. Mm -hmm. So I actually it, have been thinking of that as the fifth category. Oh. This is the sort of uh, changed incentives to resort to force. But I agree that there's a potential link there um, as well. But the, but the sort of the, the fourth question, this question about honorable combat is really, I think one um, sort of putting aside how you got into the fight in the first place, um, are you somehow being dishonorable by not exposing yourself physically? Mark? Yeah, See, I don't think so. I think that uh, at a certain point, when you're talking about asymmetric warfare, um, it's so difficult to find these individuals to begin with, and then how much risk do we have to put mm -hmm. our forces into <laughs> to try to extract them or to target them? Mm -hmm. That, if anything, this, I don't even know if drones actually level the playing field with their ability to hide. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think it's a, uh, an attempt to to attempt to get an advantage back. Right. But I'm not even sure if we even have that advantage. Right. So that's an interesting point. I think Israel, for example, would say absolutely right that it's a way for us to try to deal with the way Hamas is fighting its conflict against us. Um, Lauren, did you have something? Yeah, that was kind of you know it's seen it more as on a gut level is it a tactical difference? So mm -hmm. groups like Al Qaeda or ISIS aren't observing international law and we're going to stick to that but we have a technical way yeah. to overcome yeah. some of our you know self-imposed restraint right and they don't have the technology to do that that's unfortunate for them but it's a way for us to get back at least something right i think that's a, a, a sort of helpful way to think about a helpful way to think about it 
Okay, so um, I guess the final thing I'll just mention is what Greg raised, that some worry that because drones allow the U.S. government to put fewer troops at risk, it makes the U.S. government more willing, or whoever has these drones, more willing to resort to force in the first instance because it lowers the domestic political costs of doing so. Um, it may also allow foreign states to more readily give consent to have the U.S., for example, go in and use drones against al-Qaeda, um, where it would be harder for that actor, that state, to consent to having 10,000 ground troops come in and uh, address the same issue. Okay, so I think we're out of time. I'm going to stop there, but um, I just want to say I've really enjoyed this class. You guys have been great, and, uh, and I hope you read the, keep reading the newspaper every day with a view towards what we've talked about here. So, thanks.